Hello and welcome to our brand new CPHI podcast series. Brought to you by the organisers of the CPHI and PharmaPAC exhibitions. This is the first in a series of monthly podcasts aimed at bringing you insights from right across the global pharmaceutical value chain. Like most things during the COVID-19 outbreak, there's been a lot of adjustment to the way we've all had to work and live. So for us, the challenge has not just been to create a workspace within our homes, but also to deliver the rich content that you'd normally see at one of our CPHI physical events via digital media instead. Back in May, where originally we would have been hosting the CPHI North America trade show in Philadelphia, we instead hosted five digital webinars, all looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the various stages of the pharmaceutical product lifecycle. All these webinars are now live on globalpharmainsights.com where you can watch each one from start to finish, listen to the opinions, watch the slides and enjoy the Q&A session at the end of each one. We decided it would be great to condense these five webinars into one podcast to give you a taster of what was discussed and decide which ones you would like to delve more deeply into. May 2020 was a time when countries pretty much across the globe were implementing lockdown measures to mitigate against the COVID-19 crisis and Europe was very much the epicentre of the pandemic. We noted that pharmaceutical organisations were working night and day to develop an array of potential vaccines and therapies to fight coronavirus and development timelines were very much under the spotlight. Let's now turn to the first webinar, which was hosted on 4th of May, which featured our own senior consultants, Duncan Emerton and Daniel Chancellor from Informa Pharma Intelligence. But first, we want to play you a short clip from Tom Wilson, contract manufacturing business leader at Pfizer Centre One. Here he goes into detail on how Pfizer has defined an action plan to respond to the global crisis. You may have seen that Pfizer has publicly announced a five-point plan to respond to our global crises, sharing tools and insights. With very little known about this virus, many are working to develop cell-based assays, viral screening, serological assays, and translational models to test potential therapies and vaccines. Marshalling our people, human capital is our most valuable resource. Pfizer has created action teams of our very best key experts across multiple disciplines to focus solely on addressing this pandemic. Applying our drug development expertise, many companies are screening compounds or existing therapies for activity against the virus causing COVID-19, but some lack the experience in late stage development in navigating the complex regulatory systems. Pfizer is sharing our clinical development and regulatory expertise support the most promising candidates these companies bring forward. Offering our manufacturing capabilities. Successful therapies or vaccines will need to be rapidly scaled and deployed around the world to control this pandemic. As one of the largest manufacturers of vaccines and therapeutics, Pfizer will leverage its global manufacturing capacity and potentially shift production to support others in rapidly getting these life-saving breakthroughs into the hands of patients as quickly as possible. And then improving future rapid response. Pfizer's reaching out to build a cross-industry rapid response team of scientists, clinicians, and technicians 
able to move into action immediately when future epidemics surface. I can't adequately share with you how proud I am to be a part of this and how committed I am to its success. I know many of you have similar constructs to your company, and I'm counting on each of you to be just as committed. Interesting words indeed from Pfizer Center One's Tom Wilson. Next, we're going to turn to Daniel Chancellor, who shines a light over the industry's R&D efforts so far to develop new drugs or repurpose existing ones. The initial effort really has been led by academia and governments, and that's around this initial wave of repurposed drugs. Realistically, the first drugs to get into clinical trials are the drugs that we already have. We really are looking at you know, repurposing existing drugs. And this has involved screening of existing antivirals. We also have drugs used against other diseases, such as antimalarials. Research is emerging supporting convalescent plasma. And then as we know a bit more about COVID-19 and the broader symptoms it causes, we're also looking at using immunological drugs and anticoagulants. But yeah, this is the immediate response. Pharma is also heavily involved in innovative R&D. And it's likely that specific drugs against coronavirus will yield better results than repurposing existing drugs. Although I should say we have had some success to a degree. I know we have remdesivir's clinical trial data that were released last week. But really, with drugs that are specific against the coronavirus sequence, it's likely that we're going to be able to produce antivirals that have greater efficacy and greater tolerability. Some of the approaches that pharma is employing here is looking at monoclonal antibodies. We also have alternative approaches such as RNA interference and even cell therapies. The testing of these drugs, while we're not expecting monoclonal antibodies to actually reach the clinic until summer, the clinical testing of these therefore requires there to be patients with coronavirus and there still to be community-based transmission by the time these drugs reach the clinic. So I guess conversely, while these drugs will likely prove to be more effective, we also hope that they will also find it difficult to run clinical trials because the number of patients out there will be much lower as social distancing measures take effect. It may be that there is a, a, a setting for these innovative drugs, not as acute antivirals for the patients that are currently in hospital, but rather as prophylactics. And in this setting, they'll be competing with approaches such as vaccines. So I'm going to summarize a little bit of timelines for what this innovative R&D looks like. So as I say, while we do have some pockets of success, I know we have remdesivir as a non-specific antiviral that now looks like it is effective against coronavirus, I still think there's a lot of room for clinical improvement. And I do think that pharma will be able to deliver innovative therapies that, that provide this. The timescale for this will depend on the spread of coronavirus and the availability of patients to test. But I think it's likely that there will also be a setting for innovative drugs in the prophylaxis setting. So here we have some vaccines timelines too. This isn't an exhaustive list of, it, of the vaccines that are being developed, not by any means. We have over 100 different vaccines in the pipeline at the moment. But these are some of the most advanced, some of the best funded, and also some of the companies as well that have disclosed timelines. You can see that vaccine development really is happening at pace. Um, we have projects entering clinical trials now. We have extremely ambitious timelines and even talk of potential emergency use authorizations this year and into next year. 
I wouldn't highlight any one vaccine program in particular because it's really too early to say and there isn't any clinical data out there. But I think the breadth and the depth of the vaccine response is encouraging because the more companies we have involved in this business, the more likely it is that this will yield some success. Thank you, Daniel, for sharing your views on the almighty collective effort this research-driven industry is putting in to combat COVID-19. Now let's head to our second webinar, which we hosted on the 5th of May. This webinar went into more depth about drug repurposing. Here is Anil Kane, Executive Director, Global Head of Technical and Scientific Affairs at Pathion, part of Thermo Fisher Scientific, with some rather eye-opening statistics about the percentage of drugs which are now being repurposed. As can be seen from the chart published by BCC Research, there is an increasing trend. It is estimated that about 30% of the new FDA-approved products are repurposed drugs, and this accounts for approximately 25% of the pharmaceutical industry revenues. If we look at the trends by way of application or the therapeutic category, we see the same categories where the clinical trial data has shown that these are the top five indications for which candidates, whether these are new chemical entities or are repurposed drugs, they are being tried for oncology, for immune disorders, metabolic disorders, or CNS disorders, or cardiovascular disorders. So that trend as far as therapeutic indications stays the same whether it is new NCE or repurposed drugs. The regulatory process used for an NCE and repurposed drug candidate, as obviously, since no safety studies need to be done, the timeline for bringing repurposed drugs can be compressed. And there is a time saving, it is believed, by about three to eight years as compared to 10 to 15 years for a new chemical entity. The repurposed drugs are often filed uh, under 505B2 pathway and then filed as an NDA, BLA, depending on whether these are small molecules or large molecules. There is a flurry of activity in drug repurposing, repositioning companies. Pharmaceutical and repurposing companies are utilizing and evaluating such approaches as cost and time-effective strategies to significantly reduce NCE development. This strategy can result in new sales and market opportunities for shelved or abandoned compounds or drugs and during their exploration can reveal major new mechanisms of action relative to new target disease indications that may also lead to an intellectual property claims. Such efforts can also extend the life of current marketed drugs by determining new indications and or formulations. The commercial success, however, of any repurposing companies depends highly on the myriad of factors as shown on this slide. This includes all the component parts of drug repurposing discovery process, the IP and the regulatory issues pertaining to the clinical trials, and most suitable business models. In particular, 
repurposed drug market exclusivity is of paramount importance and can adequately be achieved by a combination of a thoughtful IP and regulatory efforts executed via an appropriate business model. I hope you're enjoying the clips from the webinar series which we carried out throughout May looking at the impact of COVID-19 and the pharmaceutical industry's response. After the quick break, we'll be looking back at webinars covering the clinical supply chain and how technology such as artificial intelligence and machine learning are responding. We'd like to give special thanks to all those companies who sponsored our Pharma Action Against COVID-19 webinar series. Pfizer Centre One, Thermo Fisher Scientific, Catalant, Genscript ProBio and CAS. If you'd like to see these webinars in full, head to globalpharmainsights.com. Now, one of the hottest topics discussed during this pandemic is how the patient-centric clinical supply chain has managed to keep going amid very challenging circumstances. There have been ongoing restrictions which have not only limited the production of essential medications, but also severely affected the business of companies who are engaged in drug manufacturing activities. Let me now take you to our webinar hosted on 6th of May, featuring Stephen Flaherty, responsible for strategic supply solutions at Catalent Pharma Solutions. Here he's talking about demand hitting inventory levels. How does demand-led supply affect inventory levels? In any study, there is most variability and unpredictability throughout the enrolment phase. In certain cases, a hybrid approach between demand-led and traditional supply may be the appropriate and effective method. By utilising a demand-led approach over the first 19 months, we manufacture and commit just what is required and are able to adjust volumes throughout each of the packaging cycles based on uptake and actual demand. At month 20, we can then cover all the remaining supply requirements with large campaigns, knowing that the demand is well established and fixed, and thereby benefiting from the economies of scale that packaging in large campaigns through centralised hubs bring. In terms of shipment of supplies, with an on-demand approach, we're able to more accurately pinpoint demand at each of the sites and provide material to that site closer to when the product is needed, with more confidence that material will be available when needed. A more targeted approach means less shipments with lower costs. Interactions with the IRT and randomizations. In a traditional approach, kit ranges are allocated in advance and stock is manufactured in bulk up front and pushed through from central sites to depots and the IRT can then allocate stock at depots to pick from to fulfil requests. In a demand-led environment, we have no stock to pick from. We receive IRT requests for a quantity of kits for each pack type. We hold and manage one randomization centrally within our systems. When orders are raised, we aggregate these orders at a country level. We then call off the next set of sequence numbers from the randomization dynamically, irrespective of the country we are packing for or the hub we are packing in. 
If kit IDs were to be pre-allocated to countries or regions, this would become very complicated when we aggregate orders and need to access different parts of the randomization list, making both printing and packaging control less efficient. After the packaging activity, we notify the IRT which kits have been packaged. The IRT validates this against their list in the system and we receive an auto-confirmation within seconds that allows the shipment to proceed. We're supporting an increasing number of new clinical trials for advanced therapies such as cell and gene. The fast-chain solution has got many benefits to the process that can be utilized by these types of studies. In these studies, the material is typically in very short supply and in all cases extremely expensive, so it's critical not to waste even one vial of product. Patient kits are often variable in size and need to be manufactured based upon the weight of the patient. Once a patient has been identified and passed through screening, then we need to supply very quickly a personalized medication kit. These are often global studies, so the patient can present anywhere in the world. Having pool supplies in a regional hub supported by a global team and a network that allows us to process these orders in an expedited manner. Let's turn to the fourth webinar we hosted in our digital week, a very interesting look at cell and gene manufacturing and how it's seen a very dramatic increase since 2014 and how things have been looking in 2020 until COVID-19 has disrupted plans. You're going to hear Lee Jatko, Commercial Strategy Director for Informa Pharma Intelligence, explain more. Here's Lee. There are two ways gene therapies can be delivered to patients. You've got the ex vivo and in vivo. Ex vivo is where genetic modification happens outside of the body. Here, cells are extracted out of the body, the cells are modified, and then it's reintroduced into the patients. If the cells come from the same patient and it's reintroduced into the same patient, it is called autologous. If the cells are introduced into a different patient, that is called allogeneic or more off the shelf. And then in vivo is where the gene therapy is delivered directly into the patient. So whether that be a direct injection, perhaps into the eye, or whether it's an infusion into the patient. Let's take a look at what's already approved on the market. So globally, there are 12 cell and gene therapy products approved. The first product to be approved was approved in 2004 in China, the product called Gendocene for head and neck cancer. It is still only approved in China, so we do question its efficacy. More recently, in the past few years, we've seen a spate of approval. In 2017, we saw the approval of Luxterna for a rare eye disease. And then we have the CAR-Ts, Kimria and Yaskada approved for blood cancers. And then just last year, there were three approvals with Collategene approved in Japan, Zogensma approved in the US and Zintaglow approved in Europe. And then when we look at the pipeline activity, we can see that there is significant and dramatic increase, especially in the last 10 years. The activity was fairly flat. It wasn't very exciting. And that was really due to some major setbacks. So in 1999, there was a patient that died from his gene therapy. And then also a number of children developed leukemias from their gene therapy. So this really created a significant setback to this treatment modality. But since then, we've improved vectors and we've also improved safety. And the interest in cell and gene therapy has really increased since 2014. 
In 2019, the number of products being developed for cell and gene therapy passed 1,000. And then just earlier this week, there were 1,382 products in development in the cell and gene therapy landscape. Most of these products, though, are preclinical, so 73%. So there is still a lot of activity in very, very early stages. A lot of the trials and a lot of the activity is happening in the U.S., but China actually is second, and it has a vibrant cell and gene therapy clinical trial landscape. And we think this is because there's a lot of regulatory support in China. We saw that the first gene therapy product approved was actually in China in 2004. But also from 2015 to 2019, there was a significant investment into the industry. So we saw a threefold increase in the number of hospitals that were approved for clinical research and also a fourfold investment in venture capital investment into the biotech industry. So there's a lot of investment in China and it's showing in terms of the number of clinical trials happening in that country. What we're seeing is that new trials are generally being delayed and that for ongoing trials, the patient recruitment and the addition of new sites are generally being put on hold. Obviously, not everything is being put on hold. There are key areas ongoing, but for the most part, we're seeing a general trend of not recruiting new patients. Looking more specifically at the cell and gene therapy space, 2020 has, is off to a strong start. Q1 is actually going quite well, so we don't see a discernible effect of COVID-19 through Q1. However, we do see a little bit of a dip in April, and this may be because most social distancing measures were introduced in March in the US and in Europe. So it may be more reflected in the April numbers. Generally, you see this ebb and flow throughout the year, but a huge uptick at the end of the year. So we sort of expect the same thing in the cell and gene therapy space. There may be a lag or delay at the moment, and the, but we do expect the effect to be quite transient. And then we do expect an uptick later this year. So while COVID-19 has had an undoubted impact on the cell and gene space, it does sound like the industry is in a healthy position to pick up and resume. This webinar also featured a great contribution from Helen Gu from Genscript Pro Bio, and also a Q&A session which rounded up some of the polls conducted during the live session. Our final webinar looked at how technologies such as artificial intelligence and machine learning can be optimised to provide solutions for things such as predictive analytics, clinical trials and drug discovery. In this webinar, we featured Dr. Yugal Sharma, Senior Director at CAS, and Aurelio Arias, Engagement Manager and European Thought Leader at IQVIA. Let's join at the point where a listener asked the panel what pharma companies can do to help AI initiatives. The first thing I would say is that you need to have a structure in place for a rapid response team. This means planning how leadership would act in response to a crisis and designating a team to scramble ideas on how your company's resources can be put to good use. I would say that the idea to be immediately helpful is to be immediately helpful and learn how to be resilient in future events. You don't want to put all your resources in something that will end up bankrupting your company. But I would say if you don't already operate in the AI field, many companies have explored artificial intelligence and how that would integrate within their uh, operating model. But likewise, there are many out there who are at the beginning of this journey. There may also be other important resources that you'll be able to help with. For example, your data streams, any sort of information coming from sales and volume data, 
and logistics. So if you're not traditionally an AI company, you still can help towards facilitating AI projects worldwide. You got this one for you. Since AI requires large sets of data in order to give appropriate results, does a company providing AI services grapple with the issue of data privacy? So data privacy issues are certainly a concern for large clinical data sets containing patient information. For those types of data sets, you know, anonymization and de-identification techniques, these are it's a widely researched area you know, to ensure that patient data can't be triangulated back to an individual. And so those techniques, there needs to be a layer of that data security and that data anonymization that needs to be applied to data before it can be leveraged in AI. And so there's obviously there's techniques you can use to do the anonymization, and there's also techniques available to sort of audit a data set to see whether it can be triangulated back or whether it meets a certain threshold of data privacy. You know, again, it applies more to like large clinical data sets. I think it's less of an issue for, for example, drug discovery efforts, which leverage chemical substance information uh, as input into, uh, in, into AI initiatives. That's a good question. And Aurelia, back to you. What specific types of AI have been useful during this pandemic? So it seems to me that the most common form of AI has been natural language processing tools which has helped make sense of unstructured data by translating, classifying, and clustering, extracting useful information from data streams out there. We've seen this right from the start in helping to identify the outbreak through to classifying all the rapid information generated live into dashboards and feeding into company systems worldwide. So NLP has been very key in making sure information is disseminated globally. Secondly, I would say that predictive analytics, those methods have been useful in modeling based on supply and usage of medical supplies, medicines, been really helpful for sort of wholesalers, distributors to try and make sure that you don't get shortages. That would, of course, be caused by the increase of demand for hospital systems. How can AI make the most impact in fighting future outbreaks and how can it be used to predict future pandemics? Yeah, so the real impact, I think, will be in stretching productivity past available alternatives governed by physical resources. So, for example, widespread and accessible diagnostics would give a much richer picture of the real spread of COVID-19. That's where I feel that you'd get a lot of impact. Another example might be through drastically decreasing repurposing timelines, such as using some of the methods that you go outlined. In terms of predicting future potential outbreaks. AI very nearly got there before us, uh, not quite. I can imagine if we get out outbreaks of this size once or twice a generation, then maybe the next time AI will be ahead of us. I think echoing what Yugal said, there's always going to be that human oversight, an element to make sure that the results have been you know, validated. But really, AI can help in two places. One is the one that we know of, which is social media listening, natural language processing of all the streams of information that are out there. But also, I think we can potentially get right down to the local level in generating and identifying little spikes of information that are abnormal, maybe at the hospital level, identifying those abnormal events before physicians do. And then before they get reported in social media, before they get 
put out there into social streams. So I think there's two layers where AI can help. Some really interesting views there, I'm sure you'll agree. And it's great news for the industry to hear how companies are harnessing cutting-edge technology to make better use of the reams of data at its disposal. you've enjoyed our look back on our digital webinar series back in May looking at farmers response to COVID-19. Join us in the coming weeks where we'll be looking at how procurement of active pharmaceutical ingredients has been affected by the pandemic and how contract manufacturing organisations are adapting to this drastically altered work environment. Finally I'd like to thank you again for listening to our first episode of the CPHI podcast series. As mentioned, head to globalfarmerinsights.com to watch the Farmer Action Against COVID-19 webinars in full and also see other news, features and analysis on the latest developments impacting the global pharmaceutical supply chain. Our next podcast in the series will be coming to you soon. In the meantime, take care of yourselves.